Well, good morning, all. It's nice to see your faces on this lovely, lovely, sunny weekend. Um, I don't want that yet. Um, <laughs> uh, we are going to uh, talk this morning about Acts chapter 7, which is a big uh, chunk of text. And I want to give you just a short preamble before Toby will come and read it for us in his resonant voice so that you're not just listening to me all morning. Um, The book of Acts, as you remember, as we've been talking about it, is a kind of narrative of new conquest, where the church, like Israel, is invading not just this 90-mile strip of land, but the world being sent and powered by the Spirit and being sent out into this, uh, they're conquering, uh, except it's a new kind of conquering. It's not, uh, they're not killing people, they're taking people captive to Christ, uh, and it's it's a new kind of captivity, and there's all things are turned on their heads, it's fantastic. And so it began with the ascension of Jesus, where he sits in authority uh, at God's right hand, and then the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, empowering the church. Uh, we have the new community of people who are uh, giving in real lived community with one another. Nobody has needs. There are no hungry people in this community. There are no people who are starving. Everyone has all that they need to survive. Uh, but this brings opposition, which begins to come against them, because they're rattling some cages by this. And framing all of this is this mission uh, stated by Jesus in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I'm sending you everywhere with this new ministry. Now, in the background, there's been this building conflict. The opposition's been growing, and conflict is growing, and things are going to get worse. And today's passage, this early conflict comes to a head with Stephen's speech before the council. Now, Stephen, a few weeks ago, we talked about him. Uh, He was a deacon who was set apart for helping to distribute food. That was his job. Uh, He's basically a, like, an official table servant. Like a, he's like the first waiter in the Bible. I don't know. It's interesting. But um, he's, 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 he's got a job. He's a deacon. He's supposed to distribute food to widows. And then they grab him and drag him before the council. And they tell us what their accusation was. Their drummed up accusation was this. This is Acts 6 uh, verses 13 and 14. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That's a cipher for the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So that's the accusation that inaugurates Stephen's speech. And as I see it, there's a few things in here. So accusation one, Stephen speaks against this holy place, against the temple. Uh, The word in Greek, tapos, comes to mean place and temple. They're just referring to this uh, the, the Temple Mount is a, is a sacred spot, and its land and spirituality kind of combined. Um, the temple is the symbol of Israelite hope. Um, it's the symbol of God's presence with his people. It's the symbol of, of God's reign on earth. So it's a very important place for them. Um, they say that he says that Jesus will destroy this place. And to be fair, Jesus did say that, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it, right? Uh, and so that part's true. And then he says he's going to change the customs of Moses. So essentially, hey, this guy is saying bad things about our most favorite spot, and he's trying to replace Moses with Jesus. That seems to be the kind of accusation that gives birth to the speech that Stephen comes. And his response is what we're going to read next, or what Toby's going to read for us next. It's long, so you've got a couple options. You can read along. You could close your eyes if you're feeling daring. Okay, um, but, or, or you just find a position that enables you to listen. You don't have to keep all of it in your head. I'm going to try and summarize it for you when we're done. But it's good to listen and just imagine, um, imagine that you're, a, well, don't maybe imagine this all the way, but you're the council, and at the end of the speech, you're going to kill Toby. No. Um, <laughs> all right, come on.
And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into that land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you're now living in. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of, a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, 
where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house, uh, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels but did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, 
Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, let's talk about every verse of that in a row. Um, I just want to begin by saying that I've read this sermon many times uh, throughout my Christian life, and I've never been able to make sense of it. Um, and there's a couple reasons for this. One is that I, I, can't, I couldn't figure out what was the reason for the association of ideas. There's some temple stuff. There's some history stuff. I couldn't quite piece together why A followed B and B led on to C, D, and F. Um, there was just very odd stuff there. And then another reason that made this odd to me was it seems like everybody's cool with Stephen, like he's allowed to speak for a really long time until the last moment, and then they kill him. And I thought, well, either you hate him all the way, or you hate him, like what's, it just didn't, their responses didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and I'm pleased to say that finally I've gotten to sit down with this, and I think I can make some sense of this, and I hope to be able to do that for you today. Now, the key, of course, is that we can't go... Um, phrase by phrase and verse by verse. I have to give you as big a picture as I can, and that means uh, there's going to be some stuff left out. But I hope that I give you sufficient information that you can go back and read it on your own later and say, okay, I can see that now. Uh, and you can hold on to some of this stuff. So I've got three goals for our time together today, what little time we have. Um, and uh, the goal number one is I want to give you a picture for what is Stephen's argument, all right? Uh, goal number two, um, very briefly, I, I want to ask, why does this make them want to kill him? So why does this get him a death sentence? And then third, um, what are some lessons for us as a church? So how can we draw things out from this? And I think we're going we're gonna to land on some leadership stuff with response to this. So here we go. Um, the religious authorities, uh, you'll remember, have accused Stephen of speaking against the temple and of setting up Jesus against Moses. And so this long speech was Stephen's answer to that accusation. So Jesus, temple, Moses is the frame that's giving, um, giving definition to this. And in a very brief summary, Stephen tells the story of Israel. He begins with Abraham, the promise of inheriting the land, uh, their exile in Egypt, their deliverance by means of Moses out of Egypt, their sort of arrival in the land, but then their further exile because of the golden calf episode. Uh, Moses' promise that another like him would come in the future. Uh, Moses promises someone like me is coming, uh, but they're still exiled. And then David and Solomon come and build a temple uh, and the temple becomes a symbol of God's presence with them, and, but they're, they've been exiled again, and now they're waiting for the arrival of the righteous one. And that seems to be like the broad story of Israel as told by Stephen in this thing. And everybody's cool with that story. Everybody listening uh, to the audience is fine. They're like, yep, that's right. Like he gets it all right, apparently, to the council until the last moments. Now in this, I think that Stephen really highlights four figures. There's four people he highlights. Uh, he highlights Abraham, Moses... Uh, David slash Solomon, I'm going to treat them as one because they both get tied to the temple. So David, the David-Solomon thing, and then this holy one who is to come, okay? Abraham, Moses, 
David Solomon and the Holy One to come, four broad figures. And these are really the anchor points in the Israelite story. They really provide the contours for how Israel looks at itself, thinks of itself, and operates in the world. Now, each of these figures has a promise attached to it. Abraham represents the promise of inheritance. Abraham points to inheritance. Let's look at Acts 7, 5. Uh, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even of what's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. This is the promise that made Abraham famous. He's got no kids, but God says, you're going to have a billion kids. And then he has one, right? So there's some, you know, there's some irony here with how God deals with people. But anyway, he's got this promise of inheritance. Abraham is the inheritor. He's the beginning of why they believe they deserve this place, this land. The second promise is Moses, and Moses represents the promise of deliverance. So Acts 7, 33 and 34, uh, then the Lord said to him, to Moses, take off the sandals, uh, the place you're standing is holy ground, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and behold, I'm going to send you to Egypt, i.e. as the deliverer. You are commissioned. And so Moses brings deliverance to the people. He leads the Exodus event, and this is the major event in Israel's, Israel's nationhood. Now third, David and Solomon represent the promise of presence. Uh, and this is articulated a bit, a bit sideways, but Acts 7, 49 and 50, uh, they're quoting Isaiah, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, what kind of house will you bid for me, build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Um, God is suggesting that like, the temple represents his presence on the earth, his place of presence, and he graciously fills it with his spirit, in, we read in the Old Testament, that God's presence was visible in this temple space. And so David and Solomon talk about the presence of God, the house where God is with them. Remember, they're in the, they're in the wilderness with the tabernacle, the tent of God's presence, uh, where the Spirit is leading them day by day. So, so this is the representation of God with his people. And then, lastly, is the Holy One. And this is where uh, uh, Stephen quotes uh, from, sorry, it's uh, Acts 7.37, he quotes from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses promises that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And this is a promise of a future deliverance. And this is Israel's hope. So three of these promises have been experienced in their narrative. The fourth is the one they're holding on to. This deliverer hasn't come yet. We're waiting to see who will deliver us in the future. Now, as Stephen goes on, each of these figures brings a human element of responsibility. There's something we have to do in response to the promise uh, in the story that we do this. So for Abraham, um, inheritance, there's covenant. Specifically, the covenant of circumcision, which you Israelites received, right? So God says, I want you to mark your children, and this will be the sign that they are members of this covenant, and they are promised to receive the inheritance, which is this land. That's that covenant. So there's a responsibility we perform. Uh, Moses and deliverance is linked to the acceptance of that deliverance. And in this respect, Israel has a history of failure. Um, Moses shows up the first time, he is a deliverer, and he tries to deliver, and the Israelites are like, you know, who appointed you as judge over this? And Moses realizes, well, maybe, maybe it's not me, and he goes to the wilderness, and God says, hey, I'm appointing you as judge over them, <laughs> and he's got to go back. And then he shows up, and they're like, hey, we don't want to go with you, but he's like, no, you've got to. And then they end up in the wilderness, and he gives them the law, and they're like, hey, we made this golden statue, don't you like it? And, uh, and so there's the history of rejection on their part. And actually, Moses' Moses's deliverance is hard fought. This is why they get called stiff-necked people um, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, so they have to accept the deliverer, but they're hard. It's hard to do. Uh, so, and then the presence in uh, David Solomon is linked to the recognition that God doesn't really dwell in temples. You can have this temple so, you know, so long as you know that I don't really live in temples. 
I'm bigger than temples. You can't put me in a box. Um, and so this is why he quotes from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. We won't put it up right now. But um, this is this big passage. God says, hey, I inhabit the earth. You can't control me by a place. And this is one of the great dangers. And what's the thing we have to do? We have to listen to the Holy One. We have to respond to it. I'm sorry. That's what we, have to, we have to accept that the temple is not this place. Finally, fourth figure was the Holy One, and he must be obeyed, just like Moses was supposed to be obeyed. Uh, when the Holy One arrives, like Moses promises, we should have a certain response to him, like obedience. This seems to be what Stephen is getting at. So four figures. Abraham, who uh, inheritance promises, I'm sorry, Abraham's inheritance means we embrace it with circumcision. Moses' deliverance means we have to obey the deliverer. David's presence is linked to the recognition that we, are, we can't box God in, and that the Holy One, when he comes, is someone we also have to obey. Now, these four figures and their four promises represent the hopes and aspirations of Israel. As a people, they've been promised the land of Palestine by God. They'd received the covenant of circumcision. Through Moses, they'd been promised deliverance from their enemies, their oppressors. And through David, they had been promised a temple where God would dwell with his people on earth. And these features came to define Israelite identity. The promise of the Holy One came to form their, their hope for the future. So they've got this identity that's tied to their hopes. All these things are tied together. This is who it is to be Israelite. However, and this is important, each of these promises have been frustrated by history. And Stephen is explicit about highlighting these elements of frustration. Israel was exiled by God. He's the one who sends them into the wilderness. He's the one who kicks them out of the land and sends them to Babylon. Uh, when they come back after the temple was destroyed, symbol of God's presence on earth wiped out, they rebuilt the temple under Cyrus, and it says that the people who knew the original temple wept when they saw the rebuilt temple because it wasn't the same. We read in the Chronicles about how when they built the temple the first time, the Spirit of God descended in power in the space. No spirit descended in power on the rebuilt temple. So we've got a temple, but we don't have God's presence. Something's wrong with where we are. They're in the land, but they're not really possessing it as an inheritance because Herod, the Edomite, he's the king. He's an Edomite. They're the ones who cheered when Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember that really nasty psalm about blessed is the one who dashes babies' heads against rocks? They're Edomite babies whose heads they want to dash against rocks, and we have an Edomite king. This is not a happy situation. So they're in the land, but they don't possess it. Um, they're in, but they don't possess the inheritance. They're in, but they're still exiled in some mysterious way. They're here, but the presence of Yahweh has been removed from them. So their identity is frustrated at this time. And Stephen highlights these frustrations. Now, to get at the meaning of this, I know this is so much content, and hopefully it'll all come together for you nicely. And if not, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> let's focus in on Moses and the Moses section for a moment, because I think this is really where uh, the key to the sermon, where things really get interesting. Stephen sets the passage of Moses promising a prophet like Moses. He sandwiches it between two passages of Israel rejecting Moses. So I'm going to try and, uh, we'll try and look at these briefly. I'm not sure how this will work. I should have made a chart, but I'm sorry, I didn't make a chart. All right, so um, Acts 7, 23 to 29 is the first section. We're not going to get all of it there, are we? Uh, Moses, this is the part where Moses is rejected as his initial deliverer. His kind of, his uh, false start at being a deliverer. He murders the Egyptian. It, you know, they're like, who appointed you judge over me, Moses? Ah, run away. Okay, so Moses runs away. Uh, Acts 7, 30 to 34. We're going to have to jump ahead a couple because we're only on verse 24. There we go. Um, here he goes. This point, Moses is commissioned by God to be a deliverer. 
So Moses had some grand ideas, and Israel said no, and now God has grand ideas, and Moses has to say yes, uh, which is awkward. And then the same guy who's commissioned in the next verses, 35 to 38, Moses promises a future deliverer, all right? Um, No, I gave you the wrong verses. That's my fault. Anyway, in one of these verses, Moses promises, it's 37, isn't it? Go on, 37. Sorry, that's why. Ah, this Moses who said to you, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 18, if you're looking it up. Um, And this is Moses' promise that this is going to come. So Moses commissioned by God, Moses promises a future deliverer, and then 39 through 43 is that Israel rejects Moses with this golden calf episode. And Stephen frames it as a rejection of Moses. So why do I put this together? Because the rejection of Moses as who appointed you judge, and the rejection of Moses by the golden calf, in the middle of it is that, no, God commissioned Moses, and Moses promised another deliverer. And that's right in the middle. And the middle points are often the key points if you're, if you're a, a Semitic thinker. And I think this is what Stephen has in mind. When Moses promises that a future deliverer will come who is like Moses, Stephen is suggesting this. If Jesus is indeed the prophet like Moses, then he is proved to be like Moses, not only in signs and wonders and deeds, but by being rejected by Israel. This is how we know he's actually God's prophet. Because you're behaving just like Israel behaved. And so if Jesus really is God's chosen deliverer, it also proves that you are just like the Israelites who rejected Moses. Which is how he finishes his sermon, right? You stiff-necked people, you who received the law that was given by angels. So I think this is the key section of Stephen's sermon uh, and the key argument he makes. And this is where people start to get angry at him. So fully broken down, this is what I think Stephen's argument is, and I've got it in five pieces, and I, again, I probably should have written it down and handed it out to you. I'm really sorry. If you want it, I'll give it to you later. So uh, argument one that Stephen makes, Jesus Christ is the Holy One, the promised prophet in the likeness of Moses sent to deliver Israel. That's Stephen's first claim. Jesus is the Holy One, the righteous one, the promised prophet. Two, as Israel rejected Moses, so you are rejecting Jesus. Historic Israel, history of rejection, guess what? You're just like your ancestors. Three, as Israel worshipped a golden calf instead of Yahweh, now you are worshipping the temple instead of the God of the temple. This is why there's this temple things coming on. Four, you should have known this since God told us that he doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands. Therefore, to your attention to this place is a form of idolatry. And fifth, in other words, You've turned the temple into another golden calf. And that, I think, is the summary of Stephen's argument. Well, not quite. There's two more things to make. There's an ominous conclusion. If this is the case, as Israel was exiled into the wilderness for her rebellion with the golden calf, now you risk disinheriting yourself from the promise of Abraham. Like that idolatry resulted in an exile, this idolatry will also probably result in an exile. And that's the suggestion So we've got these four figures and four promises, Abraham's inheritance, Moses' deliverance, the presence through David's temple, and the Holy One to come. If you reject God's chosen deliverer, Jesus the Holy One, then there's this cascade failure. You're forfeiting the presence, which means you're forfeiting deliverance, which means you're forfeiting your inheritance in this land. So in one sentence, Stephen's sermon says this, by rejecting Jesus, you are rejecting all the promises given to Israel. 
and this is where they start to lose it. Um, I, have a, I had a friend years ago who, you know, McDonald's has done a lot of work to change their image to say they have real food, but it wasn't always that way. We didn't used to know what was in the chicken nugget. And there used to be some really sad stories about how the chicken nugget wasn't actually chicken, but reconstituted beef fat. This was the content of the chicken nugget. I had a friend, and I enjoyed telling him about this. And when I told him, do you know what a chicken nugget really is? He physically took his palms and put them in his ears and went, he loved nuggets more than he loved the truth. And at this point, at this point in Stephen's sermon, the crowd are sticking the palms of their hands in their ears and saying, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. I don't like this. Because it's so uncomfortable to hear that you're disinheriting yourself, that your whole identity is wrapped up in a misstep. And it's hard, hard to hear. Well, this doesn't quite explain why they kill him, and let's get to that briefly. Um, in the final words, these are the ones that put him over the edge. When Stephen says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. This is Acts 7.56. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Now, there's a couple reasons. I'm just guessing for why this might be. I, I'm not totally sure. I think these are good reasons, but I think. Uh, one of them is that seeing Jesus at God's right hand declares that Jesus is vindicated. He's alive. He's the righteous one. And being at God's right hand means that you're in huge trouble, people. Right? You, not only have you rejected the prophet, you murdered him. This is not good. Uh, reason two, um, Stephen's words sound a little bit like Jesus' words when he's in front of the council. Um, you, will, you will see the Son of Man coming in glory, which, sounds, uh, which echoes from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, God answers the wickedness of the world by this Son of Man figure arriving from heaven in the clouds of glory. And when Jesus says that, there's all, don't, don't worry too much about this. He's saying, if I'm the son of man, that means that you're the beast. And if you're the beast, that means you're God's enemies on earth. And Stephen may be echoing the same passage, which basically identifies Israel with the, beast, the beasts of like revelation. All the evil stuff of the world, that's you. And that's when they kill him. And that seems to me that in certain circumstances, that's why you want to kill people. And they do. And that's the end of Stephen's story, at least here. All right. Um, I'm sorry that some of that was complex, and I want to change uh, tax a little bit, and I want to talk about some lessons for us as a church from this. And because there's so much I could say about how this impacts the church, about how the first martyrdom shapes our identity as a people, about what are we receiving from this kind of teaching, how do we work with the story of Israel and ours, and I'm going to leave all that aside and just say a few scattershot things and then focus on what does this mean for our training. So uh, scattershot statement one. What a way to go. Wow. When we talk about dying with a bang, this is a real bang, isn't it? Uh, the university I attended, a place called Wheaton College, has a chapel named the V. Raymond Edmund Memorial Chapel. And V. Raymond Edmund was a beloved minister, a beloved president of the college. And he had retired and he came back to preach a sermon. He was preaching on the kingdom of God. And in the middle of the sermon, he died and entered the kingdom of God. I thought, what a sermon illustration. <laughs> wow. And I kind, that's kind of how I want to go. Like, that sounds fantastic. And Stephen, this is an amazing way to go. If you could choose, right? 
Like I could die in my bed or I could die in front of a crowd. That's kind of cool, right? Anyway, um, <laughs> don't, don't think about my brain too much, please. Um, there's, something, there's, something, there's something tragic but also something powerful and something aspirational about this. That, that very few of us, none, actually none of us get to choose the day of our death. Uh, none of us get to choose that day under God's, he's chosen the time of our death for us. And that, and that if you could choose, how would you want to go out? Uh, and that's something sobering to think about. It's good, it's good for us to reflect on our death. Uh, it's, a, it's a positive thing. So uh, second scattershot comment, are we prepared to go all the way like Stephen did? Like when your time comes and when the challenge comes, are you prepared to go all the way? Or are you going to hold some stuff back? Stephen doesn't hold anything back. He gives it all. And I think there's something really admirable about that. Uh, but we're a, bit, they're a bit shifty, aren't we? We say things like, God, use me. And he says, go preach like Stephen. God, please use someone else. <laughs> right? We're, we're shifty. We don't, we don't really want that responsibility. Or God, use me. And he says, please, go wait on tables. And we're like, ah, do you have something more flashy, Lord? <laughs> right? We don't like that. Or, God, use me. And he says, go and train yourself for service. Paul, we think, spends 14 years in Tarsus doing nothing. He's not doing nothing. He's reading the scriptures. He's sowing the seeds that are going to become the books of Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians. That, those didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a period of really uncomfortable loneliness, I think, for Paul and training. Uh, most kingdom work is actually unsexy, and most kingdom rewards come on account of the faithful performance of unsexy work. You just got to get busy about being faithful with the stuff that isn't flashy. And if you seek the flashy, I mean, it's just not worth it. Now, this leads me to a question about what was the training like in the early church? How do they... What happened? How did they form Stephen so that he behaves like this? Uh, and actually, I want to get to this in a bit of a roundabout way. I want you to look with me briefly at 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, where Paul gives um, some of the only explicit teaching he gives on training of leaders. He says, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which formally is like pastor. That's what he kind of means here. Uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So he wants you to be able to teach if you're going to be in a position of authority in the church. And this is a criteria he gives. Now, I want to say some interesting things. First of all, is that Paul is in the, in the crowd when Stephen gives his speech. He's watching. Um, Luke is the one who writes the speech. And that suggests that Luke's source for who wrote the speech may be Paul. Like Paul's the one who told Luke what Stephen said because Paul was there in judgment of Stephen. Now, here's where things get interesting to me, is that the next paragraph, we're not going to read the next paragraph, the next paragraph after this is deacons, and he doesn't list able to teach as deacons. So if Paul, who knows Stephen, who was a deacon, witnessed Stephen teach like this, and being able to teach doesn't mean Stephen, it means us, how much more should we be prepared? Um, if the kind of lowest servants in the church can do this, what does it say about our training? And that seems to me there's something convicting about that. Uh, for me in this situation. Um, we actually don't know a lot about early church training, but here's what we do know. They were meeting up every day. Every day they got together. There were no TVs, radios, or smartphones. 
There were no distractions. Uh, they had limited literature. They just had some Hebrew scriptures. Uh, they reviewed daily the teachings of Jesus, which were orally taught. So the apostles had a pretty crucial role. They were the repositors of knowledge about Jesus, and so they had to remember and repeat the stuff that Jesus had taught them with those three-some-odd years they were together. And so that was, that was, and I think that's the key reason why Peter says it's not right for us to wait on tables. Like, I am a book, and I have to be book for people. And this is the most important part. Um, so what they have is a community meeting every day, Hebrew scripture, and the memory of Jesus' teachings in the words of the apostles. And I think it's really, really informative that the majority of Stephen's teaching is Hebrew Bible. He's reading the first two-thirds of the book. And that's the majority of his teaching. I, you guys remember they used to sell those New Testament and Psalms, right? You don't need the other part. It's irrelevant. You just need this new stuff. But, but they, in the early church, are teaching the first two-thirds of the book. Now, to this training is added the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to try and briefly wrap this up. And I want to say this. Some gifts are flashy, like healing, words of knowledge, uh, leading worship. Jesse's as flashy as it gets. No, 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 no. And some gifts are workaday, like the power to stand up and speak when called to. And Stephen is no less filled with the Holy Spirit when he teaches than Peter is when he heals the blind. It's us that ascribes value to those gifts, not the God who gives the gifts. So Stephen was ready, and he had a servant heart. And that was, that was key. And his readiness meant that he'd been in the church training, and he'd been studying the Word, and he'd been around this stuff. And in my experience... This is I'll be brief. In my experience, it's not that God drops knowledge into me when he calls me to speak. It's not that he gives me stuff that I didn't have before. It's that he activates the stuff that was already there. I've been reading scriptures a week ago, and then I'm meeting somebody, and he puts that scripture in my mind, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was there. And the Spirit makes the connections. But he makes connections to things that are there. I was talking with someone this past week, and they're like, yes, and God reminds me of sermons I heard 20 years ago. Yeah. That works too. Or the music you sung this morning may come back to you this week because the Spirit activates the lyrics in your mind. He works with the stuff that's in you. And if you haven't put good stuff in you, he doesn't have as much to work with. I mean, he's good. He'll work with what's there, right? <laughs> he's great at making soup out of rotten vegetables. I mean, but like, <laughs> but, but, he's, but he, if he gets good stuff, if you're putting the good in, he's going to use it more. I'm reminded a lot of people love C.S. Lewis and look to him and think he's fantastic, and they neglect the fact that he probably spent an hour a day in private devotion. If the accounts are right, he read the Psalms all the way through once a week. Um, it was the faithful performance of unsexy work that led to the gifts that you experience when you read C.S. Lewis. Uh, and so there's a lot of unsexy stuff in the background. Well, my friends, what I would like for you today, if anything... Um, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to think, oh, I'm so untrained. I would just love it if you were hungry to have more of the knowledge of God in your heart. Hungry to read more of the word. Hungry to spend time with the community that makes this stuff happen. Hungry to receive more of the spirit who makes the connections for you. But hungry for that stuff inside you so that when the moment comes, it's there. So let's pray. And we'll have a time of prayer where you guys can come forward and receive prayer. If you want to be filled with knowledge, come and receive prayer to be filled with knowledge. If you've got anything else that you need prayer for, uh, relationships, a term starting, some panic, um, uh, you know, if you've got some injuries, things you want prayer for, uh, trained people will come and lay hands on you and lift you up to the Spirit. Would you stand and we'll pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you have called Stephen and that Stephen said yes and that you gave him a martyr's reward. And I ask you, Jesus, to challenge us to be obedient to the martyrdoms you've called us to, not necessarily a big public and, and uh, visible death, but, but what small deaths are required in our hearts each day to conform our hearts more and more to your image, to your likeness, to set our priorities according to your kingdom, uh, to love and cherish this world you've given us, but to have uh, or, rightly ordered hearts within so that we are never worshiping your stuff, but always worshiping you. So, Jesus, we pray these things, and we ask you now, we invite your spirit to come and minister to your people in these next moments. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.